Welcome back to the Post Status Review with Jim Babka. I'm your host, Howard, and it's been a while, hasn't it? Jim manages both Downsize DC and the Zero Aggression Project. He's been busy, but we were both eager to get back to being with you in this podcast. Today's podcast is going to begin with a hot button issue, and you're going to want to hang on to this recording. I mean, bookmark it. The topic is timeless. We're talking about immigration, particularly the discussion of so-called illegal aliens. Let's get to Jim's unique takes. What do the Constitution and Declaration of Independence have to say about immigration? Well, I, this is a very important thing because in the immigration debate, there are, these, these fall into the category of both moral and legal arguments. The Declaration of Independence are founding documents, more of a moral uh, basis, but it helps explain why we wrote the Constitution or have the Constitution that we have, Howard. And it says that all men, basically all persons, are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. So the point of this, and this is really, really not a minor matter, is that rights don't come from the state. They are, as we describe at the down, at Downsize DC, pre-constitutional, or at the Zero Aggression Project, excuse me, pre-constitutional. Those rights came to you from a source other than the government. The, they don't come from the government. There's no law that can be made that supersedes these inalienable rights. In fact, the very creation of government, as the declaration goes on to explain, is for the purpose of securing and protecting those rights. So anything that violates those rights, even if it is done by a legal process, is illegitimate if it violates those rights. It cannot violate those rights. That is the moral and legal argument. But there's a pure legal argument, and that is the Constitution. The Constitution nowhere provides for regulation of immigration. Let me say that again, because it shocks people when I say it, Howard. The Constitution nowhere provides for regulation of immigration. Not once, not ever. Hmm. Now, uh, the uh, rule that it does deal with is the rule for naturalization. Naturalization is citizenship and the possibilities or potential responsibilities of citizenship, how to become a citizen. It's the process of how to become a citizen. And I like to make the following analogy, which almost everyone can relate to, because most people at some point in time have either belonged to a church or a club in their life, and they know that that church or that club has a set of bylaws. The bylaws would be akin to the Constitution in this analogy. In those bylaws, membership, what it re was required to be a part of that organization in order to vote, in order to be an officer in that organization, is spelled out in the bylaws. That is the rules for membership into the club, and membership in the club is citizenship. The process for becoming a member is naturalization. So if you understand what naturalization truly is, the process of becoming a citizen, the ability, for example, to vote, that is a process that the Congress can set regulations and rules for. That power is spelled out and given to them in the Constitution, just like any organization itself would choose to do. Completely makes sense, doesn't violate anybody's rights. But the ability to walk across a line, to meet with you or me as a friend for dinner, to meet with you and me as in, in a business relationship, to rent or stay in, in my home or in one of my rental properties, all of those things are between individuals. They have nothing to do with the state because every one of us has an inalienable right to movement. And the Constitution is so explicit about this that the Ninth and Tenth Amendment go a little bit further and say, look, 
If you don't see a power explicitly spelled out to the federal government, it doesn't exist. We don't have it. We've listed all the powers that we believe we have. But on the question of rights, we couldn't possibly list them. There are too many of them. So they should be presumed to belong to the people or the states. That's the way our Constitution is written. This is called the doctrine of enumerated powers, and it used to be an idea that was held very prominently by conservatives. So in review, there's nothing, there's no legal authority whatsoever from either the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution to restrict the right to immigration. Okay, those are humane and legal arguments, but welfare is a magnet, isn't it? And do we want foreign-born people voting? I mean, what impact might they have on our budget and our politics? This is the question that usually comes up. So people say, you know, they talk about this concept of sovereignty. And I want to be clear, you can't take sovereignty and put it over the individuals without crushing the individuals elsewhere. So you give a little bit of power to the politicians that you like to do the things that you want, which is protect your borders. And along comes a politician that you loathe and can't stand that starts putting up, that starts using that wall to keep you in, that starts finding ways to restrict your rights and your liberties. It starts requiring you to start presenting papers everywhere you go. There's a host of dangers that follow because you asked a politician to do what you wanted. But let's get to the real crux of the issue. The welfare and the voting issue does not matter. And here's the thing that concerns me is that every time you suggest we need to create a legal process, we need to find a way to allow these people to be able to come in and and legally, as part of our system, be able to be a guest worker, be able to stay and visit, etc. People scream amnesty as if something really bad is happening, something really horrific is happening. Well, we already covered in the previous question why no crime has actually been committed, why this was actually a human right. But the amnesty process, as it's usually derisively called, merely means that we come up with a process that outlines what the, how people could come and stay. And because, if you were listening closely during the previous question, we still have control over naturalization, we can make decisions about your membership in the club. What I mean by that is welfare should not be an issue and voting should not be an issue. Welfare, we can simply say, we are not going to provide this welfare or that welfare or all types of welfare, whatever lists, things we want to put on the list, to anybody who is not a citizen of the United States. We can take that action. We can do it legislatively. If the courts overrule, which I recognize is a valid concern, we can go do a constitutional amendment if we wanted to. But further, we can also restrict voting. Voting is at the very core of naturalization. So we have the ability to say, no, sorry, you're not going to be able to vote, or maybe you're because of the process by which you come in, you won't have a path to citizenship, or your path to citizenship is going to take significantly longer uh, because maybe you were in this previous category. We could do virtually anything we wanted. We could design that process, however, without violating anybody's rights. Those are completely constitutional powers. And for what it's worth, I share your concern. I don't think that we should necessarily open up uh, voting to everybody who comes walking through the door. I don't think we should extend welfare benefits to virtually anybody who walks through the door. If those are your actual concerns, then you and I should be able to meet together and compromise. And you should say, I'm not concerned about amnesty anymore. As long as the proposal you're going to put for these people to be able to remain here, that's the agreement. You're going to say they can remain here and work here and be a part of the American system, but they're not going to receive certain benefits and they're definitely not going to have the chance to vote. So, but there's a concern I have because frequently when I have these conversations, people don't bend even a little bit, not even a little bit. They start to 
bring up a whole host of other concerns. And I start to wonder if maybe there's a little bit of bigotry creeping in. Well, hold on, Jim. That sounds awfully strong. These people just want to protect the nation's borders. Yeah, and here's where we're going to get into the meat and probably the most uh, significant part of what I've got to say. Uh, we've, we've said at Downsize DC things about the Constitution, and I'm not sure how much it is that people really care uh, about that issue the way they should. But that's kind of abstract to people. People let go of the Constitution. They see others let go of the Constitution. But let's be clear about what borders actually are. They are tax lines and judicial jurisdictions. That's it. There's there nothing more. What that means is that on this side of the line, gang A can milk and fleece the herd, but not on the other side of the line. That belongs to gang B, which does its own milking and shearing. And by gang, I mean state, I mean politicians, I mean bureaucrats, I mean police officers and tax officials and so on and so forth. They get to they get to regulate and control and operate and take a portion of all of our earnings, all of our assets, all of our life. They get to control that. But there's a dividing line. These gangs have territories and they agree. It's part of how they keep their business model afloat, not to spend time fighting with each other over the ability to cross over a line and start taxing and fleecing the people on the other side of it. You, that gang gets its side. This gang gets its side. So, and, and we, so we have to understand that just calling the dividing line between gang territories a border is borderline euphemism. George Carlin, in a famous routine, described euphemism as a benign term that's designed to cover the sins of powerful people. So it's it would be if we were really being accurate about what a border is, we would say it's a taxation line. A nation state's border is a taxation line. The second issue here is that we're caught in a bit of a rational trap. And that is that there are there may be no good arguments that can persuade people on this issue, despite the fact that we have explained clearly what borders are, how the Constitution works, how immigration works, how the, the we can go into whole kinds of details about welfare and the fact that there's a lot of things out there that are said about immigrants that just aren't true. We can just go through all of these arguments and you reach a point where you sense that maybe something spiritual is happening. So there's something deeper going on, something uh, stranger that doesn't really respond well to rational arguments. Now, Godwin's law, it's an internet law, suggests that we know, know, the longer we spend discussing anything, in this case on the internet, but here in a podcast, the more likely a Hitler comparison is going to be made. So I apologize because it's going to seem like I'm going all Godwin on this. But if we look at the psyche of nationalists from the past, we can perhaps look at maybe the uber-nationalist, the greatest nationalist of all time, and that was Hitler. Adolf Hitler was a nationalist. He routinely spoke of binding the people into a national body, Germany first, if you will, which was even compared to his body. And this, there was a worry about the disintegration of his body, to which everyone, including him, was so closely tied. He spoke of the Jews as a virus invading the organism of the nation, and he spoke spoke of the need to act as one and expel the parasites. These were actual words he used. Nationalism is obsessed with boundaries to this very day. It always is obsessed with boundaries. The national organism is an entity from that the nat, to which the nationalist seems to find some kind of connection and, dare I say, even transcendence. And this sacred space, this country that we have, cannot be invaded by these parasites because um, we have this boundary. And people start to almost lose the sense between boundary of nation and boundary of self. The, for the nationalist, the nation is a part of his body. He's part of this body. It's part of his body. 
is you could almost say that some Im the immigrants, in other words, kind of get under his skin. Self or so, uh, so this overlapping, uh, and, and here's how I know this is starting to become a problem because I frequently get this zinger. People think, oh, they've really nailed me into a corner when they say to me, oh, I bet you don't lock your doors at night. Why don't you invite an immigrant to come in and sleep on your couch? Well, being that I probably would be hospitable to somebody in need or a particular friend that I had met, uh, I don't really think that's such a good thing as far as an objection. But the problem that they're having here is that they're confusing a taxation line, the purpose of which is to fleece all of us with a personal boundary, a property line. My property line belongs to me. I own my property. And we took the time in a mental lever at the Zero Aggression Project to explain that borders are not property lines. And when this, uh, when people are looking on the podcast page, we'll provide them the link uh, to this particular piece so they can digest this material a little bit uh, further. But uh, this concern that people are expressing for the disintegration of our culture is not that different from the one that the German people felt. They felt that their very nation was at stake and that certain forces being present in it would tear it down. This is something that they don't think uh, logically through necessarily. They're, the facts aren't going to change anybody's minds because the facts are incontrovertible. But this is a feeling and it's a passion that resists inside of people. And I, I just want to say this about this border property line thing. You have no ownership rights over your country. You may have ownership rights over your personal property, but you have no ownership rights over your country. You, you cannot, for example, walk onto any military base. You can't pull up to the gate and find the guard there and say, hey, I own this property, butthead. Let me in. You know, you start trying to drive through, you're going to get shot. Okay? It's not your property. Not, you don't have even an undivided controlling interest in it. You don't own it. It's not yours. Likewise, the border, if you had two people with property on that line, person A has a piece of property and they invite people across the borderline to come onto their property and person B says, no, I don't want the people coming across the border onto my line. Both are well within their property rights. But that does B cannot, by going over and getting C involved, rule that A cannot invite people over his property line anymore. Property rights get trumped by borders when borders become more sovereign. Remember, we spoke about this sovereignty. So you just simply can't do this. You can't pretend that this is a fair analogy, that these are the same things. But I become concerned when I see uh, people expressing these kinds of ideas. I, I, I'm worried that they think that, it's, that, that they've made a really compelling argument and that they're not taking into account the humanity of the people who are looking to come here to come for a better opportunity to come to a place that we love so much and they want to participate in that dream with us. You're not calling people bigots or, or worse Nazis, are you? No. And I don't want to do that. All I want to do is get people to think. So let me say something to anybody who's listening to this podcast right now. If in personal conversation, you attempt to suggest that somebody's immigration position uh, is, is bigoted, um, you are going to get what's called the backfire effect. This is very well rehearsed, well studied. You're, you're going, it, the notion behind this idea is that strong arguments get stronger resistance. And if you call somebody a name, whether it's true or not, it won't matter. You are going to get such resistance to change. Let me just illustrate it this way. Howard, if I sat here and called you a bigot, you're not going to go, oh my gosh, 
that was, I'm, I'm so glad you came and told me that I had this problem. I was not aware of it before. I really don't want to be this person. I will change who I am going forward. Uh, you, you can have a thousand conversations and not uh, like this and not have it happen once. You'll usually get exactly the opposite reaction. So this, this argument is like a nuclear bomb. So I wouldn't use it in personal conversation. But there is a cognitive dissonance going on within people who basically say, hey, I'm pro-Declaration of Independence. I'm pro-the Constitution. I'm pro-limited enumerated powers. And yet they're violating those rules. They don't like the liberals using the Constitution as a living document where they take words and penumbras and they make them mean new things for new times, uh, like, the, like it's been done with the General Welfare Clause. And yet that's exactly what they attempt to do in this particular situation. They create an exception. They invent a concept called sovereignty so that they can do this thing. And all I'm asking, the only reason I'm bringing this up is that I hope that somebody listening to this podcast in a passive, receptive mind, considering the arguments, not, not arguing with me because I'm not accusing you. I'm not pointing the finger at you. But people could look inside themselves and ask themselves the question about where their heart is on this matter. Because I don't know that it's possible, if your heart doesn't open up, for you to actually hear the arguments. And so I want people to search their heart and answer that question. And finally, I just want to say, for anybody listening to this that's concerned about this issue, because it is an important issue, we have a lot of hope. There is, we pointed out repeatedly in recent weeks at downsizedc.org, you can go look at the blog posts that are up on our page right now as I'm talking to you on, on, uh, in, mid, in late July 2018, that there is a lot of data going back decades to show that the majority of people in this country support immigration. They want immigrants to come here. They're proud of the fact that people want to come here. They want to share the opportunity. So why is it that we have this issue right now? Because a, the minority is very, very loud. The majority is quite quiet. I dare say this is a silent majority. And, and so if we could begin, just begin to approach the level of passion that the people who were anti-immigration had, it would be clearer to our political leaders that they should, how and, and why they should do the right thing. So I'm encouraging people to speak up because I think it does matter that we speak up and to have these difficult conversations. Should you suggest to somebody when you're talking to them that they might be a bigot? No, but you can also recognize when you're in that conversation, okay, maybe something deeper than the reasoning the logic of the matter, the facts, the data, the details, constitutional arguments, for example, isn't going to make the difference. It's not going to change this person's heart. This week, you've relaunched the free competition and currency campaign. That's an old Ron Paul bill, correct? Yes, it is. It was last introduced in the U.S. Congress in 2013. So tell us what the Free Competition and Currency Act does. Well, it would end the Federal Reserve's currency monopoly. Americans would be freer uh, to use gold, bitcoins, seashells, tulips, whatever, not just 
Federal Reserve notes. The bill itself, Howard, has three parts. First, the honest money section repeals the legal tender law. Legal tender requires that, that the government's money be used to settle all debts, public and private. You have to pay your taxes in it. You have to pay fines and fees in it. But you also have to accept it in any contract in lieu of something else of value. A monetary value can be attached, and you have to accept dollars uh, that are created by by the government. So the honest money section would repeal that and allow you to set up contracts in other devices and enforce those contracts in other mediums of exchange. The competitive currency section repeals the government's coinage monopoly. That portion basically says that that you can go out and make coins. You, and if you can get other people to accept them, let's say you make your coins in something valuable, you make them in real silver, you would be able to put a stamp on them and say they're worth X amount and you, the government would no longer have a monopoly on coinage. Um, there's been attempts to compete with the government on this question and they don't allow uh, this competition, they hold this monop this this coinage monopoly, and uh, we have we're dubious whether or not this is even constitutional. We think there's a debate that, on whether or not the federal government should be doing this. So the competitive currency section repeals the government's coinage monopoly. And finally, part three, there is a tax-free gold section um, that prohibits federal and state taxes on precious metal coins and bullion. The the, the importance of this is. Gold is real money. It's a, it's an asset of actual value. Dollars are a a a line in a, in a in a book. They don't really exist, and their value fluctuates. And in fact, it's been going steadily downwards in time. So, gold and silver, those are real mediums of exchange. They actually have actual intrinsic value to them. And what we're suggesting is, if you take your dollars and you go and buy gold, and the gold it, it becomes more valuable, and the dollars become less valuable because of inflation, and now you sell your gold as a result for more dollars. You should not be charged a capital gains tax or a precious metals tax or some other kind of asset tax because you had an appreciation in dollars. You didn't really have any more wealth. You have exactly the same gold that you had before. And so we want to try to take away this advantage that the dollar confers upon itself uh, against gold, against silver. We want real money to be treated like real money, and that means it not being taxed because the value of the dollar plummeted. So there's an honest money section, a competitive currency section, and a tax-free gold con uh, connection. Uh, I'm sorry, section to this bill. And Downsize DC played a role in writing this bill, correct? Yeah, kind of. Uh, there was a great staffer on Ron Paul's staff that did most of the legwork. And we were thinking about the very same things at the same time. And we got in touch with their staff and we were put in touch with this particular staffer. And he was already finishing up the version of the bill. It had already been submitted um, uh, at that stage, uh, as it was, uh, to the legislative office to, uh, for final review. So uh, we had one more idea to add, and it was this tax-free gold uh, idea. And the next term in Congress, they added this provision, uh, this language to the bill. And Ron Paul introduced it a couple more times before he left Congress. Um, it's been introduced since he left Congress once. It was H.R. 77 back in 2013. That was the last time uh, it was introduced. But we were fortunate that he did um, that he did include us in this process and introduce this bill. And we consider it part of our downsized D.C. agenda. So how can folks take action? What should they do? Well, 
this is one of our agenda items. It is part of the Downsize DC agenda. Right along, read the bills, write the laws one subject at a time. Uh, if you go to downsizedc.org and you pick the Our Proposals page, you will find it listed as one of our agenda campaigns. Uh, please click on it. Uh, it's, the, the campaign's called Tell Your Reps to Reintroduce Ron Paul's Free Competition in Currency Act. And there we provide you a system that is very simple, very easy to use, and free, where you can put in your contact information and the system will deliver your letter to your representative and two senators simultaneously in such a way that that office knows that it's hearing from a constituent. And we know that constituent messages are counted and the results are reported to the boss uh, in the office, the representative or the senator. So please go to uh, our proposals page. We'll also provide the link uh, on the show page. So you can see it right there uh, in this section, in this part of the outline. You can go to the link for the Tell Your Reps to Reintroduce Ron Paul's Free Competition Currency Campaign and send your letter right now using Downsize DC software. Jim is normally a guest on the Thursday episodes of The Gary Nolan Show. This next segment you hear was recorded Thursday, July 19th, 2018. Jim, what are we about to hear? You're about to hear how to watch the news. Uh, it covers the proof that uh, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News are all designed to manipulate you. And as you listen, I hope you will ask yourself why they manipulate. At the conclusion of it, Jim will return with some final thoughts. Right now, I am pleased to tell you, Jim Babka, former nationally syndicated radio talk show host, president of Downsize DC, joins me. Uh, Jim, welcome. How are you? I'm excellent. How about you? Better than nothing. And I'm really upset that that's the best rating I could get. Listen, <laughs> I watch uh, the news all the time, and I just got so tired of watching the news yesterday. I just, I could not, I, just, I couldn't, couldn't do it. I stopped uh, at the evening news and, and didn't watch. I usually record one, watch one, whatever. I, I didn't, nothing. And I got tired because it's all about Russia. And, you know, Russia's the enemy, and Russia's a danger, and President Trump has, uh, you know, destroyed our national security. He's, you know, attacking the intelligence. And it was like, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. I just, I'm, I'm tired of hearing about it. And do you, Go ahead. Your memory's better than mine, I'm, I'm sure of this. Do, do you recall there was a moment before the 2012 election that Obama, on an open mic, leaned over to a... It was, it was either Putin or a Russian ambassador, that's what I'm trying to remember. No, it was, they, um, uh, it was then president of Russia. Yes. Um, and, um, God, I can see his face, I can't think of his name, and said, when I get reelected, I'll have more flexibility or something along those lines. Right, right. So he basically did out loud on an open mic exactly what uh, Trump was being speculated to have done in a closed meeting. Yeah. Like, here's actual evidence. Here's speculation. A evidence in Obama in the past, speculation in the present. Do you remember any national media figure suggesting that there was some kind of collusion, that he was on the take, that he couldn't stand up to Putin. Does it, do you remember anything like that being said at the time? I remember being suspicious and wondering what he was talking about, what he meant 
uh, about well, it was what... clear what he meant. It was clear that he had to have a certain stance for the rubes while the election was going on. But after he was no uh, a lame duck president, he wouldn't be accountable to us anymore, and he could, you know, he'd have more flexibility to do what he wanted to do. That's exactly what he was saying. Okay. Now, I don't remember. I don't remember anything about this. Here's what strikes me about yesterday. If you turn on. Uh, the news, this phrase kept coming up. I heard it, and I don't watch the news, okay? <laughs> Just to put this in perspective, it doesn't come on my television. I have access to CNN at the moment. I won't for much longer. I've had it for about two months now. I, I, it's, it's unwatchable. Now that I've been off of it for almost a year, I hate it. And I come back to it, and it's just so bad. It's just so bad. If you, if you quit CNN for two months, I promise you won't go back. If you quit Fox News for two months, I promise you won't go back. If you quit MSNBC for two months. Now, everybody knows that MSNBC is the propaganda, is a propaganda arm of the Democratic National Committee. And everybody knows that Fox News is the propaganda arm of the Republican National Committee. What people don't know is that CNN is the propaganda arm of the CIA. It's the CIA news network. It is the deep state that's talking to you. And so you, if you want to know what the intelligence community, you want to know what the deep state, what the establishment, the people who are kind of above the party are thinking, then you turn on CNN. Okay, so if you're conservative and you're not watching CNN, you're missing some important stuff. And, and, and if you want to watch these three networks, if this is where you're going to get your news, you're missing some of the things that they may say. I can't stand it because it's all obvious to me what they're doing, and it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's all invented. It is all fake news, all three channels. And the proof of it was so evident in this story, just so incredibly evident, because every one of these networks, along with ABC and CBS, kept using the same phrase. He threw the intelligence community under the bus. Yeah. They said it again and again and again. And how do I know this? Well, it starts showing up in my feed, and I happened to be in my dentist's office while they were playing CBS in the morning, and they kept saying it again and again. And I watched Rand Paul get interviewed on two different networks, and I watched how he had to be cut off. He couldn't be allowed to speak. The people who were interviewing him, these dispassionate, um, even-handed uh, you know, journalists who were concerned with facts and truth, were shrill. Uh, rude, interrupting, and loud, really loud. They would shout over top of him to try to keep him from finishing his answers when he defended the president's behavior over there. Now, I remember none of this happening with Obama, but the thing that's even more and more significant than all the bias is, is two things. One, they seemed like they were on a script, like the script had been handed out to everyone. Everyone knew what they were supposed to say. He threw the intelligence community under the bus. When you start to see a phrase pop up again and again and again in place after place after place, you know that a memo's gone out at some point. You know somebody's put out the word that this is the message. Now, in this case, it's not the people who are coming on as commentators are saying it. It's the actual hosts of the shows themselves. In every instance, it was the host of the show that said it. It was these dispassionate journalists. So that's the, here's the second thing. Where did it come from? Why was it showing up on Fox News just like it was showing up on CBS and ABC and CNN? Why? Why was it showing up? Because there's a war party. And the war party is greater than the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. It rules both parties. And this president is not cozy, is cozying up or getting along or being nice or being pleasant to a guy that you are supposed to be scared of, ladies and gentlemen. You're supposed to be in fear of him. Abject fear. 
There's $800 billion on the line just in the defense budget alone. There's other monies that are being spent on top of that, but just in the defense budget alone, just in contracts, there's $800 billion on the line. If you're not sufficiently scared, you won't spend the money. So that's why we go from one threat to another. We go from one threat to another, and they, they can't stop. And by the way, the North Korea threat's been dialed down, so another one somewhere else has to be dialed up. And if there's not going to be enough Russian threat, they're going to give us more Iranian threat. And people run around led by the nose with these things. They see this stuff on MSNBC and CNN and, and Fox, and they pretend that it's somehow or other true because it's being said out loud and it's being said so frequently. Why, if you hear it often enough that, they, that the president threw Putin under the bus, why shouldn't you believe it? Well, some of you will resist that because you like him partisan-wise. But you should be resisting all of this stuff, regardless of who's saying it, because it keeps getting said by the war party who has an interest in keeping this whole fear machine going. The script went out. They all knew what they were supposed to do. Anderson Cooper didn't waste two seconds. This I read online. He didn't waste two seconds. As soon as the press conference was over, he immediately, he's the one that comes back up on screen. He said that it was the most embarrassing performance by a U.S. president in the presence of a Russian leader ever. Didn't waste a moment. Anderson Cooper's former CIA. I'm telling you, this is <laughs> the company is letting is, is in charge, and the memo went out, and it went out across all the networks. The neocons at Fox knew what they were supposed to say. The the anti-Trump, you know, der, Trump derangement syndrome people over at MSNBC knew what they were supposed to say. They were all singing from the same hymn book. And and Wolf Blitzer, while he's interviewing Rand Paul is open about it. He's saying, sir, you know, it's your, it's your Republican colleagues that are saying this stuff too, right? Because the war party transcends the Republican and Democratic Party. We cannot have a conversation. We cannot get along with Iran. We cannot get along with Korea. We cannot get along with Libya. We cannot get along with Syria. We cannot get along with Yemen. We cannot get along with Russia. And again and again and again, they're trying to stir up war to keep you scared because $800 billion is on the line. So there's always some wolf at the door that we need to be careful about. By the way, uh, it was Dmitry Medvedev that... Uh, Obama said, just wait till I get past the election, I'll have more more room. Yeah, you know, this is another historical, and, 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 and you know, I give Rand was under fire, so it's hard to remember all the data and details of something when you're sitting there on live television. You've experienced it, I've experienced it, it's hard. So, you know, later on you say, oh, I wish I'd have said the following. Well, he tried to corner um, Rand Paul by pointing out that Ronald Reagan said that the Soviet Union was an evil empire that he used tough language. He wasn't afraid to say stuff, you know, that was bold. Now, leave aside the fact that media types like Wolf Blitzer at the time said that that was proof that Ronald Reagan was deranged, right? Uh, you know, his behavior wasn't becoming of the office of the president at the time. But now they're looking back and saying, this is the kind of thing that Donald Trump should have been doing. He should have been calling Putin evil right to his face, right in front of the media so that the whole world could hear. He should have turned and looked at him and said, you're an evil bastard. All right, and I hate your guts, and we, we're hoping we get in a war with you soon. That's what he was supposed to essentially say uh, in order to satisfy these people. Wouldn't have, but that was what he was alleged to say. But what, here's the historical fact that people forget. That's first-term Ronald Reagan. That's first-term Ronald Reagan. 
That's not second term Ronald Reagan. Go look up the record. The stuff that he said that was the hardest was first term Ronald Reagan. It bled over into the second term until Gorbachev said he wanted to sit down. And after he sat down with Gorbachev, he stopped talking like that. He never did anything like that ever again. He sat down, he talked with the Soviet leader, and he ended up, ended up uh, coming up with an arms treaty. George W. Bush, Republican president, said that he looked into Putin's eyes and saw his own soul. None of the histrionics that we see now, none of them. Why? Because they didn't think Bush was going to threaten the military-industrial complex. He was running wars all over the planet. He was good for business. This is different because they're fearful. And I can't, this is the part I can't get. I don't understand why. Two days before, or three days, I, I, the, the calendar's a mess to me. He's at over sitting with NATO allies, and he's getting them to pony up more money. Literally, he just did more in sales for the military-industrial complex in one day than any of them are going to do combined this year. <laughs> and, and what? I, I, so I can't, I can't even get my head around how bad the CIA and the NSA and the DIA hate this guy. Jim, what would you want people to take from this episode? Um, Howard, I would want them to take from this episode that things aren't what they always what they appear. Uh, when you're watching something on television and it's being purported to be news and you're even seeing other outlets talking about it, that doesn't mean that you're being told anything important, factual, or the truth. It just doesn't mean that. Um, we have a mental lever at the Zero Aggression Project. We'll put up the link on the show page called Agenda Setting Theory. Agenda setting theory is not something we invented. It, it exists. You can look it up on Wikipedia as well. And agenda setting theory basically suggests that the things that we choose to talk about as a people uh, is, is what's being covered by the media. That's the thing that dominates our discussion. So – uh, and the degree of public interest is tied directly to how much issue, uh, how much an issue gets covered. Um, as we point out in the mental lover, this is a manipulated process that leads people around by the nose. And your only defense against it is to be aware that it's occurring. If you know that it's occurring, then you watch the news differently and you begin to understand what's happening differently. And you cannot be manipulated, which is really, really important. Uh, it's been said that if you read the paper every day, uh, if you don't read the paper, excuse me, if you don't read the paper at all, you are uninformed. If you read the paper every day, you are misinformed. So you need to have tools. That's what the mental levers at the Zero Aggression Project are designed for, starting with this one on agenda setting theory, recognizing the truth, the things that you're being told. You know, at the end of the day, the people who are in the war party, um, they don't really want to give peace a chance. It makes sense why they wouldn't. And when you can start to spot the pattern, then you can digest news and actually glean from it, even when you're being misled, what the truth might be. So I encourage people to check out this mental lever we've got and all the mental levers we have at the Zero Aggression Project, and we'll include it on the show page. Thanks for listening to Jim Babka's post-statist review. And I want to encourage you to go to the websites that you just heard Jim mention, zeroaggressionproject.org. Also, check out downsizedc.org. You can find a ton of great information on both of those sites. And again, thank you for listening and have a great week.